Chapter 12. A Quiver Full Frank stood by the bassinet, gazing at the seven and a half pound, should have been a boy, scrap of humanity. The fact that this child was part of himself and me filled him with awe. The plans we made, she would be a woman of God. Any child of ours would be naturally be pliable as we moulded her for the life we wanted her to live. She'd do all the things we had not been able to achieve in our own childhood. We dreamed on. It was something of a shock to realise she was born with a mind of her own. Didn't she know four hourly feeds were sufficient for a baby her size and that she shouldn't cry half the night, keeping her father awake when he needed his sleep to combat that tight band slowly getting tighter around his head? Three weeks after Maureen's birth, he went to hospital. Perhaps the baby sensed more of the tension of these days than we realised. No date, my own tensions contributed to her fretfulness. None of the other four was as difficult in their early days, but they also had minds of their own. How could five children in the same family be so different? We quickly discovered they each had to be treated as the individuals they are. Gifts from God, we called them. Did God really send such mischievous gifts? What's in them is also in you, a frequent visitor would tell us when we reprimanded them in his presence. Was he saying we were also imperfect? Well... Perhaps church would make them perfect. From the first Sunday they were born, the children went to church. We went well armed with toys, the silent kind, enough so that when the child lost interest in one, it could be replaced with another. Father couldn't tolerate noisy toys, even as he frowned on biscuits and cordials in church. The children learnt to sleep wrapped in blankets on the floor. I envied mothers who could sit with their husbands in church. The measure of grace I needed to control the children on my own was always seemed to be in short supply. We didn't count on bringing up the children in the full glare of the congregations who seemed to know better than we did how to raise children. Those PKs, a deacon in one church, always referred to the, our children this way. Pastors, kids indeed. Don't you single our children out like that. I responded angrily. My children are no different from yours. They have the same aptitude for mischief and the same possibilities for God. I wanted to add, so there, but Frank would never have approved. Years later, I would probably have told them, in a nice, kind way, to mind their own business. Frank supported my point of view. We'd support each other if we didn't agree 100%. I'm not sure what Dr Spock would have said. He was the only authority anyone read in the early 50s, and he bred generations of undisciplined children in spite of his good points. Dr. Dobson wasn't around. We only had the Bible. Bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We clung to that, and are still clinging to it. We did get one piece of advice. It came in a letter of congratulation from a grandfather. Having had the joy of watching two little lives come into our home and develop and grow into manhood, we can understand your happiness. With the joy comes the responsibility to set before this little one, from the earliest beginnings, that pattern of life and example that will lead her feet into Christian values. 
the regularity of the family altar observance, the teaching of the little one, a baby lisped prayer with her earliest ability to speak, and your vital efforts for the building of the kingdom of God before her will contribute to her proper understanding for future usefulness to God. Frank introduced the family altar. More accurately, he inflicted the family altar adult style on the kids. Frank read the Bible, King James Version, asked a few questions about the reading and prayed. Kids wriggled, and I missed what, to, what he said, trying to keep them quiet. At Amen, they bolted out the door to resume the game Dad had interrupted. As the children grew older, Father thought of a new trick for Sunday lunchtimes. Can anyone tell me what my text was this morning, he asked. They stared in silence. So you weren't listening today, he reprimanded them. The kids were quick to catch on. Next time, he asked, they knew his text. What he'd said about it was another matter. Brian looked guilty. Remembering that father had marched down to him when people had their eyes closed to reprimand him for misbehaviour with a clip on the ear and a warning. You sit there and behave or else. He marched back to the platform. Some teaching did sink in, though it did not always have the desired effect. The topic under discussion was the second coming of Jesus. Yes, one day Jesus will catch us up into the air and take us into heaven, the lesson concluded. But I don't want to go up into the air, ten-year-old Brian wailed. Why ever not? Because my trousers might fall off, he sobbed. Besides, I don't want him to come until I've got married and have children. We didn't bargain on the lessons the children would teach us. Like the morning Frank was out digging the garden. Graham had decided to stay in bed that morning with a severe headache and an ugly lump in his groin. Suddenly, the bedroom window opened and little head popped out. Daddy, will you come and pray for me? Graham asked. Sure, son. I'll just finish this job and I'll be right in. Frank went on digging, forgetting about the request in his effort to finish the job. Half an hour later, the window banged open again. Daddy, I got sick of waiting for you, so I prayed for myself. What happened? I got healed, of course. God gave us other miracles. He healed Brian of hepatitis diagnosed by one doctor and declared a misdiagnosis by another, as he did not believe hepatitis could disappear so quickly. The most dramatic healing happened the night I found Brian choking. He'd been perfectly well when he went to bed an hour before. I went into the room to put some clothes away. A strange gurgle coming from the top bunk caught my attention. At a glance, I could see Brian's face was blue and he was struggling to breathe. I dropped the clothes in a heap on the floor, dragged the boy over the edge of the bunk, crying out, In the name of Jesus! He'd been sick all over himself and was unconscious, but his colour began to improve. Lord, what shall I do first? I cried. I knew we needed the doctor, and Brian needed a bath, but I was afraid to lay him down for a single moment. Please, Lord, send Frank home from the youth meeting. I need him. Frank by now halfway through his message to the youth, suddenly began to lose his train of thought. As he fumbled for the right words, he decided to finish. I'm going home. You carry on, he told the youth leader. 
As Frank walked in the door, I thrust Brian into his arms. He's sick. I must call the doctor. Frank prayed. I made the call. Anxiously, we waited for the doctor's verdict. I can't decide if he had a convulsion because he was sick, or if he was sick because he had a convulsion. It could be he had a fit. The doctor administered an injection. That will relax him. But I think I should put him in hospital. He needs continual watching. Can't we keep him at home, Doctor? Frank knew there was no faith in a hospital, while at home there was. The doctor hesitated. Well, if you watch him constantly all night, take his pulse at midnight and phone me, then perhaps you can. Frank determined that he would watch the child so he could pray in tongues until night dragged into morning. You get some sleep, he told me, knowing my difficulty in coping with sleeplessness. At midnight, Brian's pulse was still erratic. The doctor dropped in again, obviously worried that there appeared to be no change in Brian's condition. At 6am, we sipped an early cup of tea, and a small boy opened his eyes, looked at his father, and said, Hello, Dad, I'm hungry, and went in search of the box of Weetabix. There was yet a great deal of living and learning to do for all of us, as we discovered the day we found Brian sitting in a police car. We had been to a picnic with the Bible College students. (laughs) There was a great deal of living and learning to do for all of us, as we discovered the day we found Brian sitting in a police car. (laughs) We had been to a picnic with the Bible College students. Frank walked over to the car. Well, young man, what have you been up to? I rode Jim Shaling's motorbike. But you can't ride a motorbike. Graham showed me how, the boy sobbed. He didn't show you how to stop, the policeman said gruffly. He looked at Graham. Are you sure you didn't ride the bike as well? Brian jumped to Graham's defence. He didn't ride it, only I did. He wouldn't change his story, though we were all suspicious. The owner will need to come to the station to make a statement and tell us if he wishes to lay charges. In the meantime, we'll leave the boy with you. The policeman climbed back into his car and drove off. Right, said Father. You'd better tell me exactly what happened. Are you sure Graham didn't ride it? No, only me, Brian sobbed. I rode it up the road, but when the police car came up the corner, I didn't know how to stop and I just fell off in front of them. The agony of a suppressed grin crossed Frank's face. Don't you realise you could have been killed? Don't you ever do that again, he said turning to Graham. Or you. But three days later, the bike had been moved again. Have you two boys had that motorbike again? Frank was angry. Brian looked to Graham for help. I cannot tell a lie. It was Brian, Graham hastily said. It was not. Brian was indignant. Graham is lying. Or was it Brian? Careful sifting of the facts revealed Graham was the culprit. But that wasn't the only time Frank had to sift through a story. Beverly and Brian came in after school one day with pockets full of coins. Look what we found, they burst out. Where did you get it from, Frank asked. We found it under a hedge in the park. A likely tale. Fear that they had stolen the money was foremost in our minds. Now I want the truth, Frank stressed. Where did you get it? We found it in the park, they claimed in duet. If you don't tell me the truth, I will get the strap to you. Frank was getting exasperated. 
The children stuck with their story, but father kept his word. Two howling children still insisted they had told the truth. We discovered later it was the truth. That day we learned that impossible stories might just happen to be true. How can you withdraw an unjust punishment? I consoled them with the thought that this spanking would serve for all the ones they should have had for other misdemeanours that we hadn't discovered. Years later, when the family was together talking about childhood escapades, we discovered there were quite a few, and we thought we knew everything. It was in 1966 that the Beatles came to town. Those fellows with their weird hairdos will be a bad influence on our young people, Frank concluded. The Sunday they were to arrive, Frank issued a warning to the youth in the morning service. I trust none of you will go to meet the Beatles at the airport. It isn't any place for Christians. Service over, Beverly pressured her father into letting her go into the city to her friends for lunch. It just so happened they could see the planes landing from Jeanette's house, nestling on the hillside. Lunch over, the two girls went for a walk, right down to the airport. A policeman, seeing two small girls by a hole in the fence, thought they might get crushed by the swarming crowd of teenagers behind them. Come through and stand by me, he said, helping them through the hole in the full view of the media. Television cameras zoomed in on them. Newspaper and radio journalists interviewed you. What is your name? Beverly Houston. How old are you? Ten. Where do you live? In Lower Hunt. When the policeman moved across to the plane... When it landed, the two girls stayed with him, as he'd said. The whole world knew that the pastor's daughters had actually met the Beatles. That'll give the congregation something to talk about, I muttered. Frank laughed. Some would say that was the beginning of a rebellion. But she hadn't been specifically told not to go. Beverly learnt that we loved her and understood something of the thinking of a ten-year-old. No, it wasn't that which caused rebellion. Rather, it was a loosening of her grip on God and confusion when a guest preacher spoke on deliverance with a long deliverance session following. We didn't realise how some of the scenes had affected her at the time. As a teenager and beyond, she shuddered at the thought of it. If only she had seen the deliverer instead of the deliverance. But if onlys are a waste of time. It was Beverly who would challenge us about which church she should attend. It seemed to be the natural course for the children to stay in the assemblies of God. Beverly at 16 would make us rethink our position. You wouldn't like it if I went to another church, she challenged us in a fit of rebellion. We don't mind which one you go to as long as it is evangelical and doctrinally sound, Frank told her. Determined to test Frank's sincerity, she went off to the Salvation Army the next night. Well, how did you enjoy it? Frank asked. Dad, you won't believe it. Captain Padman recognised me and publicly welcomed me. She looked embarrassed, even as she told us. Ah, oh, well, experience shoots the lesson home. Still, her church attendance became spasmodic, but when she did come, there was always a wave for her father from the back of the church and a surreptitious scratching of the ear as father acknowledged her arrival from the platform. Beverly and her father had a perfect understanding. Graham also determined to show his independence by moving into a flat with some friends. Hair over his shoulders and wearing raggedy jeans, he could listen to all the rock music he wanted to without me praying for the Lord to stop it. I don't think he ever found out why the record player suddenly refused to go. 
His lifestyle worried us when we remembered the world of drugs and sex. Yet, this was the son who, some years later, would hitchhike 600 miles from Brisbane to Sydney just to meet us at the airport when we came to preach at a camp. Our host scowled at Graham's appearance, but we accepted him as he was. We must always keep the door of communication open so that he can come home when he wants to. If we cut off communication, we will never be able to help him, Frank said. I agreed. Frank arrived home from a meeting one night to find a note from Graham on the kitchen bench. Dad, please wake me up. I want to talk to you. He'd decided to sleep at home that night. No, I still do not know what they talked about, but there was satisfaction in knowing that Graham felt free to come to his father. God challenged my attitudes towards this long-haired son. I was preparing to speak to the youth group at a fancy dress night they were having. My choice of verse was appropriate. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Those young people are not as they appear, I wrote. Neither is Graham. It was like the still, small voice mentioned in the scripture. The realisation shook me as I remembered the Christmas that he and his girlfriend Caroline and a friend made sandwiches when they took the alcoholics into the city parks. Those young people are not as they appear, I wrote. Neither is Graham. It was like a still, small voice mentioned in the scripture. The realisation shook me as I remembered the Christmas he and his girlfriend Carolyn and a friend had made sandwiches which they took to the alcoholics in the city parks. As much as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me, Jesus said. Graham followed from afar. No devious scheming of ours would reach him, but God had his own way. He eventually joined the fire brigade, and as part of his training he watched a post-mortem on a 21-year-old boy, the victim of a car accident. If that were me, I wouldn't go to heaven, Graham confessed to himself. I'd be in hell! He plunged into deep depression, crying for weeks. Neither his wife nor long-distance phone calls from his father could lift him out of it. Frank caught a plane for New Zealand. Even a visit from his father wasn't the answer. How we prayed that God would heal him. A feeling possessed him that he might die himself before too long. Worry upon worry deepened the stress of sleepless nights. As Graham lay tossing in the darkness, he thought of the Bible. Frank had given him for his 18th birthday. Perhaps it might have something to help him. In the early hours of the morning, he rummaged in the cupboard until he found it. He wondered what he should read. As he turned the front cover, he noticed the scripture reference his dad had written on the flyleaf ten years before, Proverbs 3. He'd read that. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. God began to speak gently to a son who dwelt in darkness. Graham read on. From the promise of life in verse 2 through to verse 24, which told him that when he lay down, his, sweet, his sleep would be sweet. Every distressing worry was answered in that chapter. This was the turning point. Finally, Carolyn's comforting love helped Graham back to health as the depression slowly lifted. He and Caroline began to come back to church until a woman verbally attacked Graham over certain actions. You shouldn't be doing that. You're Pastor Houston's son, she told him. The two young people walked off, hurt and embarrassed. 
How can people be so insensitive? Why don't they leave the Holy Spirit to do his own work? Frank cried. Unfortunately, God's people are often insensitive. The Holy Spirit doesn't need our help to convict sinners, and I'm not sure why we think he does, I replied thoughtfully. That God is more merciful than people was proved in the experience which almost shattered our world. We were sitting comfortably by the fire one night when our daughter and her boyfriend came in. Do you want a cup of coffee? I asked. Sit down, Mum. I've got something to tell you. Her voice continued an unusual gravity. There was a long pause, and then she continued. I'm pregnant. For a moment, we had no reaction. Then deep, unreasonable anger swept through me as I realised the implication. Fingers would be pointed at us, and we would have to resign from ministry. Twenty years ago, a premarital pregnancy in any circle was regarded as the ultimate disgrace. There would be some ready to accuse the pastor of this inability to control his children. You'd better leave, I told the boy. Don't be so hasty, Frank reprimanded me. I'll have the baby adopted, our daughter volunteered. I'll pay for her to go to Australia, her boyfriend offered. After they had left, we discussed the situation. Should we tell the church and the other children or just Trevor Chandler? As our associate pastor, he should know. We didn't tell anyone, but we should have done. Eventually, somebody else told the children. We'll have to resign from the church, Frank said. A day later, when the heat of the moment had passed, I began to ask myself, had God removed the call to ministry at this time? Or was this an attack of the devil designed to smash our ministry? We fell on our knees before God. I voiced my thoughts to Frank. I don't think we should resign. God hasn't lifted the call, he agreed. Our daughter went to Australia, but a noted troublemaker in our church asked the people at the next prayer meeting to pray for the Houston family situation. Did she suspect something, or was spreading gossip a spiritual guise? We never found out. Our hearts continued to ache, and our daughter suffered extreme homesickness as she sheltered in a Salvation Army home from a hostile world. We decided she must come home. We arranged for her to go as a companion to an elderly lady over the mountains from our valley. Within us there was a monumental struggle between the desire to keep the baby and face the consequences or proceed with the adoption. Frank, I think we should keep the baby. It might be another statistic to the government, but it is our grandchild and I want it. I can look after it. I've been thinking the same thing, he said. We hurried over the mountains to tell our daughter what we had decided. That day, we saw a light in our daughter's eyes which had been missing for a long time and God removed the ache from our hearts. But people are not so forgiving. Months after the baby was born, some by their attitude screamed condemnation at the young mother until an agonised cry fell from her lips. Mom. When does God forgive? As soon as we confess our sin from a repentant heart. Then why don't people also forgive us? Why indeed? Unfortunately, people are not like God. Frank and I both would have carried her pain, 
but she had to work through it herself. Do you realise the times I longed to sit on your bed and talk after an evening out? She asked one day, years after she was married. No, I I hadn't realised. Was it easier to understand the needs of a procession of sick animals and birds which found their way to our door, usually in Beverly's arms? That grubby little pigeon, half dead with lice. I knew how to treat lice. They'd succumb to a doses of poultry lice powder. Frank didn't understand about animals, but he did understand people. It was too difficult for me to stay awake until the children were in at night to have a conference, but Frank always knew when they arrived home. Bringing up the children was an adventure in laughter as well as tears. From pacing the football field, encouraging our young son's play, even when one raced away from the other players to score a grand try, albeit at the wrong goal line, to enjoying Judith's teen years, there has been lots of laughter. Judith, the one I thought I was too old to have, has probably been the easiest to handle. The only child born after we were filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you saying I was a mistake, Mum? She asks with a twinkle in her eyes. No, not a mistake, a surprise, but a jolly good one. Not that she was perfect. Oh, no. This child who told everyone that Daddy delegated babies instead of dedicated them and that he wasn't invaluable instead of available had a vivid imagination. Judith tells me that she had a twin brother who was killed in a car accident, my neighbour informed me one morning. That young minx! There isn't one ounce of truth in it. Ah, an imagination. The seat of creativity. This child should be creative indeed, but they were all good at imagining. Beverly wouldn't own me as a mother before her schoolmates. My hair was too grey for a mother, so I became her grandmother. The only consolation in our mischievous gifts from God was the statement made by some unknown person that mischievous kids were intelligent. Our children should be top of the group. The relationship we had with them was only slightly marred by their embarrassment when schoolmates asked why their father stared out the kitchen window. How could they know he fervently prayed for the passers-by, including them? Suddenly, they were all adults, turning thoughts towards marriage. Frank prayed much for them, especially those who seemed to be interested in young people we thought were unsuitable friends. But... Who wants to listen to any advice when the mind is made up? Beverly's husband, brought up a Catholic, couldn't believe we didn't fight. Maureen's husband chose Bible college, although she wanted to avoid the ministry. The reasons for that we would find out ten years later when she and Ian separated. On hindsight, I knew she cried for help a number of times, but I'm not sure we would have believed her story had she told it to us. If only we'd known. Again, the if-onlys were futile. Our hearts ached without relief through the anguish of divorce. It was like a death in the family. What about the children? Frank and I both cried. When she spoke of remarrying two years later, I had many questions. Would David understand Maureen's emotional needs and could he be a father to the children? He became the husband and father every family needed. Graham's wife as a child, had also been brought up a Catholic. Carolyn had promised God to go to church every day if he would heal her father from a heart attack. Small girl as she was, she did as she had promised. Brian, 
who plans to enter the ministry, had fallen head over heels in love with a girl 400 miles away, so we couldn't form an opinion. Lord, let her be suitable for a minister's wife. She would either make or break his ministry. Bobby has helped to make it. Judith fell in love with the head deacon's son, who had determined when he was twelve that he would marry her. Now more than ever they needed our prayers. Frank continues to pray for them every day, along with the grandchildren. God must surely answer. We have survived the traumas of child-rearing, while the children have survived our inexperience and our mistakes. Fifteen grandchildren later, we realise that we are very much family when they come running to greet us with open arms. Being grandparents is the best ego boost a person can have. We have no books except the Bible to guide us, but by example, sometimes imperfectly, we try to portray the love of God. Frank's philosophy over the years has been to let the children go so that we may keep them. That we are included in the greater family circle would suggest this to be right. The children have possibly paid a price for the work of the Lord. Maureen says the family all gave their father to the ministry. So they do. The decisions a pastor makes can alter the whole course of his family's life. But finally they, and us, choose our own ways. Remember kids, we are free to make our own choices, but we are not free to choose the consequences of those choices. Frank reminds them. The two who chose to help us in another vision certainly saw some consequences for their choice.